Appendix, Violent Crime in the United States, 1980. The Model Penal Code of the American Law Institute, 1962, requires the judge to employ generally accepted scientific methods. Until at least 1978, the consensus of the criminology establishment was that offenders could be rehabilitated in prisons and also in the community under the tutelage of probation officers. This opinion prevailed, even though irrefutable statistics revealed that at least two-thirds of all offenders upon release from prison or discharge from probation commit other offenses. The goals and standards embodied in the Model Penal Code are really little more than vague concepts which at one time were found palatable by the criminology and jurisprudence establishments. They do not provide precise modalities of treatment or clear instructions to the sentencing judge. It is interesting and significant that the word punishment is not used, nor is the concept of making whole the victims of crime any part of the purposes of sentencing. Indeed, the victim of crime is not even mentioned, except in a passing reference in Section 7, that a fine should not be imposed if it would prevent restitution. Neither restitution nor reparation is included in the purposes of sentencing. This short appendix focuses on violent crime in the United States. Three observations are necessary. First, the year 1980 seems to have been a peak year for violent crime in the U.S., Subsequent data indicate that rates dropped in many areas. This may be due to the aging of the U.S. population, since young unmarried men commit the largest proportion of crimes. Second, the rates for murder began to rise in the mid-1980s, probably because of drug-related criminal behavior. Third, the growth in criminal activity is a Western phenomenon, not just national. In Canada, between 1970 and 1974, the number of recorded crimes rose by over 30%. In England and Wales, crime rose also by 30%, 1974 through 78. Substantial increases also took place in France, Sweden, the Netherlands, West Germany, Denmark, Austria, and Italy. This indicates the direction of the growth in the 1970s. Of great concern is the fact that actual crimes seem to have exceeded reported crimes by many times. In the U.S., actual crimes were as high as three times those reported. In England and Wales, it was closer to ten times higher. There is no doubt that there is a still major crime problem today in the U.S. reports one article on the economics of prisons. Every week, like clockwork, the total number of prison inmates in the U.S. grows by 1,000 people. That's two big prisons worth of lawbreakers, most of whom cost between 14000 and 30000 a year to feed, house, and guard. With 605,000 men and women behind bars in state and federal prisons, the U.S. already has the highest incarceration rate in the Western world, about four times that of the U.K. or France on a per capita basis, and that's not even counting the 300,000 or so in county jails across America. With 37 states under court orders to reduce overcrowding, the U.S. has embarked on a prison-building program unparalleled in history. The primary response of the authorities to crime has been prison building. The rate of incarceration has grown every year from 1972 from slightly under 100 per 100,000 population to over 220. Just as rehabilitation was the byword of the 1960s, in the late 1980s, crime-weary citizens wants to lock the bad guys up and throw away the keys. The Explosion in Crime, 1960-1980 through 1980. 
In the United States, from 1960 to 1980, reported violent crimes skyrocketed in the United States and Western Europe, although not in Japan. The major increase in the United States took place in the periods 1964 to 1973 and 1976 to 1980. Part of this reported increase in the 1960s was the result of improvements in the statistics of several large cities. Between 1963 and 1973, violent crimes rose 174%, while population increased by 11%, a 16 to 1 ratio. Local public spending on police forces increased from less than $1 billion in 1964, an incredibly low figure given the enormous size of tax expenditures on public schools, welfare, streets, and buildings, to $7 billion in 1974. In 1960, there were about 3.4 million serious crimes committed in the United States. By 1974, there were over 10 million. Violent crimes increased by 47%, 1969 to 1974, from 659,000 to 970,000. Scholars debate furiously as to the cause of crime and why rates of violent crime change. Such factors as urbanization, the growing proportion of young unmarried males in a society and the absence of wars outlets for violent behavior have all been used to explain the increase. Since 1968, economists have entered the debate. They tend to focus on the cost and rewards of crime and crime prevention, on the assumption that crime is just another form of profit-seeking, risk-avoiding behavior. One scholar even argues that, on the whole, over the last seven centuries, homicides as a proportion of total population have declined by a factor of 10 in Britain. But the American public is aware of the fact of violent crime, whatever the causes. The March 23, 1981 issue of both Time and Newsweek, the two most widely read U.S. news magazines, ran articles on violent crime. The Plague of Violent Crime, Newsweek, and the curse of violent crime time. We might also consider conducting a research project on spying and petty theft in the news magazine publishing industry. In the United States, between the periods 1930 to 34, 1975 to 79, population grew by 84%, 123 million to 226 million. Homicides went up by almost 600%, from 14,618 to 101,044. Homicides per 100,000 population climbed from 11.9 to 44.7. Interestingly, the number of civil executions per homicide dropped by over 99%, from 1 per 18.8 to 1 per 33,681. The growth in homicides was relatively low from 1935 to 39 era until 1945 to 49. But the curious fact is that homicides per 100,000 of population dropped from 1946 until 1962, from 6.9 murders per 100,000 to 4.5. By 1972, it had climbed to 9.4. Homicides went from 44,000 in 1960 to 64 to 101,000 in the 1975 to 79 period. In Los Angeles, the increases were comparable population increase was 142%, homicides were up 686%, and homicides per 100,000 of population tripled. As evil as the crime of murder is, however, it must be understood that many of the victims are far from innocent victims. A study of murder victims in New York City made in 1977 found that half of 1,622 victims in 1976 had police records. 
35 had been arrested on murder charges themselves. Young men were the most vulnerable single group, constituting about a third of the victims. Youths between the ages of 16 and 20 accounted for over a quarter of those arrested for murder. Almost half of the victims were black, and 30% were Hispanic, but 124 of the victims were elderly people who were probably killed during robberies. James Q. Wilson points out that the number of robberies per 100,000 dropped from 1946 until 1959. Then, in 1960, it increased sharply, remained stable for two years, and then jumped again in 1963, 1964, and 1965. In 1959, the rate had been 51.2 per 100,000. In 1968, it was 131. Auto theft had increased from 1949 until 1963, when it rose dramatically. He writes, It all began in about 1963. That was the year, to overdramatize a bit, that a decade began to fall apart. The 1970s brought no relief. The combined rate of three violent crimes, murder, rape, and robbery, in the United States increased from slightly over 350 per 100,000 of population in 1970 to just under 600 per 100,000 in 1979. The rate had peaked in 1975, dropped with the recession of 1975 through 76, and then began increasing again during the Carter administration. Fear of crime leads in survey on reasons to leave big cities, announced a New York Times headline, May 16, 1981. The poll was conducted by the Gallup organization. In the 1970s, there was no prominent cause of the migration out of the cities. In cities of 1 million residents or more, half of those who left cited a high crime rate. The article goes on to say that the Federal Bureau of Investigation's Uniform Crime Reports on the number of crimes reported to the police show that violent crimes of murder, rape, robbery, and assault rose 31% from 1976 to 1980, while crimes against property, larceny, burglary, and theft rose by 16% in the same period. The biggest increases for both categories came in 1980. For cities over 1 million population, violent crime was up 17% and property crime 13%. Also, suburban and rural crime have been increasing in all regions of the country at a rate not far behind that of big cities. Juvenile Crime Juvenile crime has accelerated since the end of World War II. Arrest for violent crimes by juveniles increased by 98% from 1967 to 1976, and arrest for those 18 and older increased by 65%. A study released by the Ford Foundation in 1978, Violent Delinquents, reveals that a hard core of 3% to 5% of those arrested account for more than half of the violent crimes per portrayed by juveniles, in effect, a hardcore criminal class. According to Professor Marvin Wolfgang of the University of Pennsylvania, who has conducted studies of delinquent youths in Philadelphia since 1945, over one-third of the youths are picked up by police for something more serious than a traffic offense, but 46% of these delinquents had no further police contact after the first offense. Concludes Wilson, Though a third started on crime, nearly half seemed to stop spontaneously. Out of the 10,000 boys, however, there were 627, only 6%, who committed five or more offenses before they were 18. Yet these few chronic offenders accounted for over half of all recorded delinquencies and about two-thirds of all violent crimes committed by the entire cohort. 
Wolfgang's research also indicates that the degree of injury inflicted by youths on their victims has increased. People are getting their heads bashed in and seriously hurt in ways that didn't happen before. A loss of confidence. The result of this visible failure of the criminal justice system has been a growing distrust of the police and the courts by the public. A poll taken by Newsweek magazine in 1981 and published in the March 23rd issue asked, How much confidence do you have in the police to protect you from violent crime? The response? A great deal, 15%. Quite a bit, 34%. Not very much, 42%. Not at all, 8%. Don't know, 1%. Second question, how much confidence do you have in the courts to sentence and convict criminals? The response? A great deal, 5%. Quite a bit, 23%. Not very much, 59%. Not at all, 11%. Don't know, 2%. When 70% of those surveyed have very little or no confidence in the court system, there has been a massive failure on the part of those high officials who are entrusted with the responsibility of providing justice and safety for the public. On average, crime pays. It is a well-known fact that very few crimes result in an arrest. This does not tell the whole story. Most crimes are committed by a handful of professional criminals. By arresting, convicting, and eliminating the activities of one burglar or rapist, the law enforcement system drastically reduces crime on the streets. One estimate says that if all people convicted of serious crime in New York State were given prison sentences of at least three years, the rate of serious crime would be reduced by two-thirds. The U.S. Department of Justice's National Institute of Justice in 1987 released the results of a study of 2,190 inmates in California, Michigan, and Texas. It concluded that when a repeat offender is released from prison, he commits an average of 187 crimes per year until he is again imprisoned. The cost to victims of crimes committed by these people is an estimated 430000 per year. Warning. This assumes that the 187 crimes a year are on average expensive crimes, rather than shoplifting, which involves large numbers of less expensive crimes. This does not appear to be the case. The reliability of these statistics have been challenged by academic professionals, as statistics so often are. The cost of building a new cell and maintaining it for a year is 25000 per prisoner the study estimated. This can be seen in a different way. The construction cost is between fifty and 100000 per bed, with the amortized cost at 25000 a year per prisoner. Actual operating costs run about 15000 per prisoner. The study concluded that the $8.6 billion cost of operating the nation's prisons and jails was about one-tenth the cost of society if the institutions were shut down. This conclusion appears to be self-serving on the part of the corrections bureaucracy, but the public sees no other alternative. In any case, it needs to be recognized that the total expenditures of civil government at all levels in the United States is today in the range of $1.5 trillion per year. Thus, the cost of prisons, or even the law enforcement system as a whole, is a tiny fraction of total government expenditures. Arrest and Conviction Nevertheless, the issue is not simply the cost of maintaining prisons. The issue is the effectiveness of this particular sanction. Does this threatened sanction reduce crime more effectively than some other sanction would? Are actual victims better off? Are potential victims more secure in the long run? The threat of imprisonment is no better than the likelihood of a sentence being imposed and carried out. 
the question must be asked, what is the relationship between arrest and conviction? According to the headline of a New York Times article, January 4, 1981, 99% of felony arrests in the city fail to bring terms in state prison. About 80% are not even prosecuted as felons. About one in six serves time in a city jail for under one year. At a time of rising concerns about crime, the police, prosecutors, city officials, and research specialists say that law enforcement officials have decided to treat all but the most serious offenses as misdemeanors, more often than not by a plea agreement reaching during arraignment. The process by which felonious crimes are dealt with in New York City, and by implication and statistics most other major American cities, is revealing. Consider statistics for 1979. Officially, 539,102 felonies were reported to the police. This, of course, is only a fraction of the felonies committed, although no one is sure just how large a fraction. The police arrested 104,413 persons on felony charges. This cleared up about 63,000 of the reported crimes, or only about 12%. Grand juries charged 16,318 of these arrested people with felony crimes. The cases against the other 88,095 were dismissed by the district attorneys or treated as misdemeanors. Of the 16,318, 56% resulted in felony pleas by the defendants of guilty. 16% resulted in misdemeanor pleas, 13% in trials leading to a verdict, and 12% in dismissals. In short, criminals are rarely sent to prison for any particular criminal act. The criminals know for certain what the public suspects. Crime does pay. The risks of being caught for one crime are low. The risks of a repeater's being caught are high. The risks of being convicted and serving a lengthy period in prison are minimal. Professor Walter Burns, a political scientist at the University of Toronto, has summarized the problem. Between 1966 and 1971, the U.S. murder rate increased by 52%, and the crime rate as a whole rose by 74%, as reported in Crime in the United States, Uniform Crime Reports, 1971. Crimes of violence, murder, forcible rape, robbery, and aggravated assault went up 80%. In 1971, there were 5,995,200 index crimes, crimes cataloged by the FBI, reported to the police, and everyone knows that a large number of crimes are never reported to the police. The proportion of arrests to crimes reported was only 19%, persons charged 17%, persons convicted as charged 5%, and persons convicted of lesser offenses 0.9% all of which means that punishment was meted out in only 5.7% of the known cases of crime. The conclusion is inescapable. Crime pays. Moreover, some authorities insist that most crimes are not reported to the police and that only 1.5% of all crimes are punished, which is to say that 98.5% of crimes committed go unpunished. Aging and Crime the rate of crime began to drop in the early 1980s in the United States. The only reasonable hope that citizens of the United States seem to have for continuing this reduction in crime in the near future, apart from a religious revival, is that with a falling birth rate, the number of young men, especially unmarried young men, ages 18 through 24, as a percentage of population, will fall. Older men commit fewer crimes. They get married, and marriage reduces crime. Gilder points out that about 3% of criminals are women. Only 33% are married men. 
Although single men number 13% of the population over age 14, they comprise 60% of the criminals and commit 90% of major and violent crimes. In short, there is little evidence that tinkering with the criminal investigation system will bring relief to the victims. The causes of crime are too complex. By the late 1980s, major U.S. cities began to experience a rapid escalation of violent crime, especially murder, as the drug culture began to be organized on a highly business-like basis. An estimated 50,000 to 80,000 youths in the Los Angeles area now belong to gangs. Homicides per year peaked in Los Angeles County at 350 in 1980 fell to about 200 in 1982, and then rose again beginning in 1984 to about 400. Biblical Law and Social Order Modern criminology is a recent and very inexact science. It has become dominated by the ideology of political liberalism, which in turn is deeply committed to environmental determinism. Criminologists have had very few scientific studies available to support their opinions concerning the relationship between poverty and crime or overcrowded urban life and crime. As Harvard University political scientist James Q. Wilson has pointed out, it was not until 1966, 50 years after criminology began as a discipline in this country, and after seven editions of the leading text on crime had appeared, that there began to be a serious and sustained inquiry into the consequences for crime rates of differences in the certainty and severity of the penalties. Now, to an increasing extent, that inquiry is being furthered by economists rather than sociologists. It is not surprising that criminology has not been influenced much by the concept of biblical law. The legal standards found in the Bible provide society with a means of establishing social order. Biblical law works because it is comprehensive, and it deals with men as they are, yet in terms of an ethical code that tells us what we should attempt to become. When those who would shatter the foundations of social order openly disrupt the lives of law-abiding citizens, then the civil government is required to step in and restore order. This may involve the permanent elimination of the criminal. Biblical law imposes conditions which make crime expensive. Thus, biblical law imposes the death penalty for certain classes of crimes that involve an intolerable attack on the foundations of social order. The biblical social order must be preserved. Courts make mistakes, justice is not perfect, and the innocent defendant may sometimes see his hopes crushed by a miscarriage of justice. But an occasional miscarriage of justice is preferable to the advent of a permanent criminal class. There will always be a miscarriage of justice. The question is, in what direction is the criminal code headed? Toward the Bible or toward humanism? There is a slogan in American jurisprudence. Better that a hundred guilty men go free than one innocent victim be punished. This implies that it is legitimate to require standards of evidence so rigorous that only criminals are ever convicted. But the price of earthly perfect justice is the destruction of the legal system which attempts to provide such justice. As Moses discovered, Exodus 18, such a quest for perfect earthly justice would subject a law-abiding society to waves of criminals who could not be convicted in terms of the standards of the perfection-seeking criminal justice system. The justice system would bankrupt the treasury by attempting to deliver perfect justice. The delay in punishment would increase the likelihood of crimes committed by the present-oriented criminals who tend to ignore the long-run consequences of their acts. The courts would be jammed with appeals, delays, and unpunished criminals waiting to be sentenced. The judges would tend to issue milder sentences in order to speed up the wheels of justice. 
plea bargaining by lawyers would get sentences reduced by getting criminals to plead guilty to lesser crimes. The bigger the backlog, the lighter the sentence. There will be no plea bargaining on the day of final judgment. Justice will be perfect then. We must content ourselves with imperfect justice until then.